Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, we'll be reading verses 33 through 39. That's found on page 1095 of your pew Bibles. The title in our English-speaking Bibles is a question about fasting for this section of the text, and it does indeed deal with that question of fasting, but far more than that simple question, whether or whether or not we should fast. There's a, there's a depth here. There's an understanding of Jesus as our Messiah and how we can miss it. And really what the question we need to have in our minds is, is Jesus' presence and does his presence require or mean feast or fast? As we have that thought in our minds, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give to us understanding as we come before you to seek to know your word and by knowing your word, know you. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this sermon, you would bless the words that are spoken, you would help them to be true and accurate, and that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would work in in each one of us through the reading and preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 5, beginning in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of they said to him the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink and Jesus said to them can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days he also told them a parable No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good." This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our lives. We have many expressions for those who display the wrong answer or the wrong characteristic and behavior in a certain situation or setting that they're in. For example, when you're at a party, a celebration, or a feast, one who is rather sullen and sits in the corner with a dire expression on their face, or grumpy, or, or upset, is called a killjoy, is, is called a party pooper, something like that, that they're, they're not displaying the appropriate emotions and behavior for where they're at. And the opposite as well is true. If you're in a somber occasion, if you're in a place where it requires reverence and awe and respect and someone approaches it as if it's a celebration, this person is deemed rude. They don't understand the situation. It's inappropriate behavior. You don't act like you do at a wedding, like you do at a funeral, and vice versa. We know that, and yet that's the whole issue of the text today. The question of what is appropriate, what activities should be done. And there is an answer there that Jesus supplies. And yet it comes again in the midst of another attack from the Pharisees. This section of scripture just keeps bringing them. The Pharisees keep bringing their complaints and their attacks against Jesus and what he's doing. Last time it was the company he kept with tax collectors. And now it's in the behavior of his disciples and himself. 
It's, a, it's an attack against his disciples and him. And, and they even bring John and his disciples into it. John the baptizer, this, this man who had proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God, one allied to his purpose. And, and they would say, but, but look at their disciples. Look at John's disciples. They fast. They follow these traditions. They follow these rather pious activities of worship. Why don't you? Why don't your disciples? And so there's this attack against them. See, elsewhere in God's word, there were attacks against Jesus because he would eat and drink. He would attend festivals and celebrations. And so it was said he's just a drunkard. He's loose. He's not conservative enough. He doesn't follow these traditions. He doesn't follow the practice of holiness and righteousness. And that's what's before us today, a conflict. And in this conflict with the Pharisees, that does continue. We see that Jesus reveals their hearts. It's no surprise. Simeon, remember early on in the Gospel of Luke, had said that this child, this one that Mary and Joseph brought to the temple, would cause the rise and fall of many. And he also had said, and reveal the hearts of many. And that's what's happening here. Here comes the teacher. Here comes the true Messiah. And yet, and and just try to wrap your head around this, the Messiah, the perfect one, is, is being critiqued for not quite being holy enough, for not quite being pious enough, not comporting or conforming to the standard of the Pharisees. That's what's in their question. Why don't you do what we do? Why aren't you doing what's right in our worship and its form? All to attack him, but that question has to be asked. Does Jesus' presence mean feast or fast? We see this in the the controversy over fasting, and that's our first point. What is this controversy? Let's delve into it a little bit so that we would understand it. We would understand how deeply ingrained the practice of fasting was, and that, in fact, it was a good one. Done well. It wasn't wrong. It could be utilized, and in fact should be utilized in the worship of God. And yet they didn't understand it. You see, the controversy over fasting shows the self-righteousness Of the Pharisees. That's what we see in our first point. In the controversy of fasting, we see their self righteousness. His opponents ask him this question, and this this question really is a is a the tip of the iceberg to the the Pharisees' whole practice and the Pharisees' whole life. What they followed was a very important aspect of their worship, and we're going to miss application to our hearts if we don't frame this correctly. If we don't actually see how good of a practice fasting was, if we don't actually see how it could be utilized well, we'll actually miss in our own hearts our own propensity to self-righteousness. You see, this wasn't just coming out of left field. This wasn't just some strange question that they brought. They're coming with a legitimate question. The disciples of John do this. We do this. This holy practice, why do you not? It would be easy for us just to say the Pharisees are just mistaken. You see, they don't understand worship. That's it. We'll miss what's going on here. Fasting, how did that arise? What was the purpose of that? Fasting was only actually commanded for one purpose in the Old Testament. God only required it connected to the Day of Atonement. And there was a day of fast required for that. It was the only commanded one, and yet fasting had a rich heritage. 
It was a practice of the saints by which in times of of difficulty, in times of question, in times of needed prayer, they would fast. There were days connected with the destruction of Jerusalem where they would fast for festival's sake. Fasts were used for penitence and mourning, for expressions of of sin and, and their shame. It was used to help them key in on needed prayers. The Pharisees had developed a rather routine practice of fasting. It was a practice that happened twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. You actually see this practice reflected in Luke 18 when the Pharisee, who is superior to the tax collector, says that I fast twice a week. That's what they did. And connected to those fasts, it was usually to dress in such a way, to act and and to put your face in such an expression that it would be known you were in your fast. And so now you start seeing creeping into a good practice some perhaps less than holy motivations. But the practice itself was good. Fasting isn't wrong. In fact, Jesus does fast at times. He doesn't follow this regular pharisaical tradition of fasting, but he does. The disciples in Acts fast. You see that in chapter 13, verses 2 through 3, Acts 9, 9, Acts 14, 23. The early church and the apostles there would fast in significant occasions and for purposes of prayer. Fasting isn't wrong. And so what we see here is this isn't really a question about whether to fast or not. It's not about the merits or demerits of fasting. It's about understanding why and understanding the occasion, just like we began. You see, it's not wrong to walk into a funeral with tears in your eyes and to grieve and express that grief. It's inappropriate to walk into a wedding and tear down the celebration with that purpose. It's inappropriate. You need to know the time and place. That's what's going on here. This pious practice had Old Testament support, had a long history, and you can almost see them ask Jesus and his disciples, why do you display such a lack of pious worship? And not only don't you fast, you feast with those you shouldn't be even even associating with. That's their dilemma. Can't you just hear them even say? You can, you can almost insert yourself in the text and try to argue textually with them and say, the Bible doesn't require this. You might hear them say something, well, why would you not do what such a holy practice? Why would you not do what could bear such benefit and fruit? If you're truly holy, why wouldn't you do the same? Now, don't we use those arguments? Those arguments aren't even bad. They, they are good. Why wouldn't you do this this established practice of worship and holiness? The issue wasn't in that. Their tradition had become more like law. It had become such that they determined to judge the holiness of one off of their conformity to such practices. And they utterly missed Jesus, who's the wise man, right? Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom itself. He knows the proper situation. He knows the proper setting. He understands when fast should be utilized and not, and they don't get it. They lack the wisdom. They lack the understanding to determine it. You see, they began to equate the practice with what one could choose to do with what one must do. And we should heed that warning. That's clearly present in this text. We cannot elevate what might be our traditions, even if they be good traditions, 
into that place where all must conform to it or they're not like us. They're not as good as us. They're not doing these pious practices, so ergo, they're not as holy. So easy for us to do. And in fact, easy for us to do in established traditions where we might make them the law of the Lord, when perhaps they're not, and how we practice it. See, it takes wisdom. You don't dispense with holy practices. You don't even ignore fasting. It's to use it for the right purpose and the right reason. And what we see in this text is it's supposed to be used ultimately for the Messiah and for for God himself. You see, in the Old Testament, often fasting was associated with a desire for the kingdom to come. And the Pharisees would fast with those prayers on their minds, praying for, for the Messiah, praying for him to come. Now you begin to see, well, fasting while he's present, isn't that inappropriate? Aren't you then missing the identity? We must beware you can use zeal to hinder truth. You can misunderstand a situation, think that what you do is the best way, your practices are the best way, how we say things are the best way, and so judge other according to that, and they'll always be found wanting. Because we're never going to be wrong in what we think is established, right? You see, what we need to do then is, is approach this again with that wisdom and introspection, not to just throw away what we do because, man, tradition must be wrong but to actually ask why we do it, to understand it, and to see the purposes, and to also see, is this a required practice, or is this a good practice? And the Pharisees don't get it. Calvin expresses this from this text, and a caution we should take. He says, let us learn not to place holiness in outward and indifferent matters, and at the same time to restrain ourselves by moderation and equity, that we may not desire to restrict others to what we approve, but may allow everyone to retain his freedom. To not bind consciences, to not place holiness merely in outward and indifferent matters, and that's what the Pharisees did. And it shows. Holiness is to fast twice a week. That's Now you're a good follower of God if you do that. What about the heart? What about the Messiah? What about God who stands before him? Externals and even external religious practices are easy. Very easy. And the more you try to make, the more it becomes this matter of fact, you're you're just building your puzzle, you're just adding your pieces, what you're missing, and I'll do this, and that gets me there, and this gives me holiness. It's easy to attend church twice on Sunday. It actually is. It's an external we could just do. It's easy to do that and to say that's the supreme example of holiness. You come to worship twice. That's a good practice. That's a biblical practice. But if it's just done as an external to comport with it, we're completely missing the point. And then we're Pharisees sitting there saying, I am holy because I worship, I attend worship. You can have a holy practice and miss the Messiah completely. And then what good did that do us? 
externals are just a veiled form of works righteousness. If we do these things, we're good. But it's not. It is the heart. That's what you see in this text. The Pharisees missed it. They totally missed it. We need to be clear that we don't. J.C. Ryle as well has a good quote on this. He says about matters that are important, and that's what I don't want us to think. Everything he's about to list here is important and must be done well and use wisdom in it, but it does truly reflect how we are to understand the wise application of God's word. He says about church government, about the manner of conducting public worship, about fasts and feasts, about saints' days and ceremonies. Christians have never been entirely of one mind, even from the days of the apostles. On all these points, the holiest and ablest servants of God have arrived at different conclusions. Argument, reasoning, persuasion, persecution have all alike proved unable to produce any unity. We must hold tenets of the faith, and on that we will not, we will not compromise. On other matters, we must agree to differ. It will signify little at the last day what we thought about fasting and eating and drinking and ceremonies. That's very wise. And again, we have to be careful, though, how we take it. All those things matter. You have to conduct yourselves by doing worship practices. You have to decide, am I going to do this or that? These things have to be determined. And they should be determined well, and you should be using Scripture to do them. But we also are not self-righteous in them. We can have huge arguments on, on about, in theology, what's called the adiaphora, the, the stuff that doesn't actually matter. They're practices that can be utilized or not, and they're not right or wrong, and yet we can take those type of things and make them the end of all. And if, and if others don't follow that, then they, they're, not, they're not even saved. They're not Christians. I am one who is reformed, and I think we do a wonderful job. Otherwise, right, I wouldn't be a pastor here, nor would you be coming here if you didn't think this was a wonderful way of doing it, and in fact, the, a biblical way, and in many cases, the ones that express correctly and most faithfully what the Bible should do, what we should do. But that doesn't mean we don't walk in humility as well. That doesn't mean we don't look at our practices and say, hey, they do it different. And as long as they're not violating God's word, and as long as they're, they're doing what God has required them, that's the regulative principle, as long as they're doing these things, then this isn't a, a wrong practice. You see how we have to approach it, but how the Pharisees aren't. That's what we want to avoid, that type of staunch, We are just dug into traditions without understanding why. And why is this a problem? So first, we have seen their issue is a self-righteous legalism, not understanding why they did it. And now the second issue and our second point, that they misunderstand Christ and the kingdom. And this this is even worse. The presence of the bridegroom they miss. Through missing the presence of the bridegroom, they're showing their rejection of the Messiah. They're showing that their practices, which were good, were good in form, missed him completely. Jesus answers in verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's very rich. 
Very rich. Why? Because he's describing himself as the people's bridegroom. Our bridegroom means the church is his bride. And he's here. And to to plug into that illustration, we see how inappropriate it is that the bridegroom is there. How inappropriate would it be at the wedding for the bride to come in 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 sweats without any type of celebration, without any care, in fact, mourning and upset, sacrificing or, or fasting, as it were, to not even recognize before her is the bridegroom. And in fact, to do practices that were intended to ask for his coming and miss that he's here. That's why this is so much more than just should we fast or not. Jesus' own answer says, no, right now, it is inappropriate to fast because I'm here. But the time will come when I'm not, and then my disciples will fast. It's not about whether you can or can't fast. It's that do you recognize why? Jesus' presence requires a feast. He's here. The kingdom has come. And they miss it. They actually show through this by asking Jesus, why don't you fast, that they truly don't see him as the Messiah. Use Anna as an example. Use Simeon as an example. They were those who belonged to the time of preparation. They longed for the Messiah. Anna had, had spent her entire life praying and fasting in the temple. That's what Luke 2 tells us. And what does Anna do when Jesus is brought as a child She praises the Lord, and she goes to everyone celebrating and thanking him, thanking God for sending him. It changes. It changes from a fast to, in that sense, a feast. Because Christ has come. So she gets it, and that's the response of a holy saint. Not to come to that Messiah and say, why don't you fast? Why don't you conform to this practice? Pharisees fasted when the bridegroom was present, showing that they were inappropriate. Do we focus, do we ourselves focus on what's not primary and miss Christ's kingdom? Perhaps we are too focused on feasting for the wrong reason. That's kind of the opposite of the the application of the text. Perhaps we are those to feast and only feast and not care. And so what we've done is we've missed the Messiah because all we're doing is is focused on, on this life and bounty and pleasure and party Do we miss the Messiah that way? Do we miss the Messiah by living in an overly, a spirit of overfasting? What do I mean by that? I mean one that does not recognize the Messiah has come. That your life doesn't bear the marks of a celebration or a feast. And that his presence and the reality of the kingdom of God has utterly escaped us and we could basically be plopped back where the Pharisees were and living as if he hadn't ever come, as if the kingdom wasn't inaugurated, as if he didn't ascend, as if he wasn't on his throne. Fast can be used appropriately. Let's take them and use them. Let let us fast in times of important prayer, in times where we are are wanting to especially glorify God. Paul talks about that, and Paul talks about many ways of fasting beyond just food. You can refrain from other activities to devote yourself to prayer. Let us do that. 
But it's, we haven't missed the presence of the Messiah in the process. It's all with that understanding he indeed has come. And in, in this sense, we fast to feast. The Pharisees fasted to fast. The fast was their end goal. We fast to feast. Our fast and refraining from the good things of God is all with the intent to focus our attention on that feast to come on the putting to right what's broken, on answering the questions that we have for the sake of God's kingdom. You see, that's fasting to feast without making the goal just the practice, an empty practice. It's to be our heart. Do we overly fast? Do we overly feast? You see, the Pharisees' practice, and even John the Baptist's practice and way of life, what his disciples were doing, was entirely directed for the preparation of the coming of Christ. And John John stood right on the edge of that. John was austere. He he did not eat and he did not drink. He, He ate a very limited diet. He fasted. He lived a life that was appropriate for his end time. The the closing out of the Old Testament prophet before the new prophet and, and true prophet came. He fasted and he feasted, and it was appropriately so. But you get to see, even in this lifetime, how the switch is to occur. And this is what you start seeing about what Jesus is saying, the old versus the new. That was the end of the old. It was appropriate then, but something has happened. And if you don't see the presence of the new, everything's destroyed. These conceptions represent the two stages of salvation itself, the, the dispensation of a anticipation versus the fulfillment. In Christ, it's fulfilled. In Christ, it comes. It's the new that's brought in. We get the kingdom proven by the very fact that we know when it's appropriate to celebrate. That is then indeed a mark of those who are faithful, like I already said of Anna and Simeon, of the disciples. You see, in that act, just by feasting, It's actually an act of faith because they see that the one is here and they have joy. They recognize his identity. And the ones who wouldn't do that utterly miss the bridegroom. And the beauty that's there, that that because he names himself as the bridegroom, it means he loves us. It means he's united to us. It means we participate with him. That, that, That idea of the bridegroom is an Old Testament theme. God, in the Old Testament, often spoke of himself towards his people as the bridegroom, as the husband, and his people were the bride. And there were, there were ways it was applied in very beautiful ways of, of, of wedding and, and, and honeymoon-like wording. But this is the blessing of knowing it and, and glorying in that relationship. It's used in a bit of a negative way when the people failed and turned away. And it was adultery because they were turning away from their bridegroom. They were turning away from their husband. And now Jesus comes and he identifies with that which was reserved for God. It was God who was the bridegroom of his people. But now the bridegroom has come. He's here. And if there's only two reactions to that. Celebration or rejection And the Pharisees are rejecting. We see that in the old versus the new. This is our third point. The old versus the new in in Jesus' parables. 
Their practices can't stand without understanding this. Jesus tells them this parable. He mentions the piece of a garment and old and new wineskins, and these parables are both showing the same truth. It is foolish to take an old garment that is ripped, find a new garment, cut a patch out of the new garment, sew it on the old garment, and then what's going to end up happening is as that new garment shrinks, it's going to rip the, the old one, and it won't even match to begin with. And so what you've done is in trying to preserve the old and notice that and trying to preserve the old garment by ripping apart the new, you've lost both. Same thing is true of the wine and wineskins. You don't take wineskins that are old and put new wine in them. New wine ferments. New wine releases gas. New wine will expand it. And if you put new wine in an old wineskin, it's going to burst. And what you've done is you lost the old vessel to contain it, and you've lost the new wine that was put into it. This is what the Pharisees are doing in trying to retain the old, in only identifying with the old, in setting up their practices and their traditions as the truest and only expression of holiness. They are missing the new, and what Jesus is saying is if you take the kingdom of God, and what I'm bringing in, and you try to cut a piece out of it and paste it to this, your practices, and these Old Testament ceremonies, and even what you've added to them, you've lost both. You can't accept the new. That itself is, again, a dire warning. A dire warning to them, and the warning to them was, you better understand the coming of the Messiah and how he brings in new You can't just keep doing what you're doing when the kingdom has come. Life changes, and it did. The old way transformed. It changed because Jesus came. You can read about it in the book of Acts. There was many controversies over that newness of the new replacing the old. And how the the Jews and the people of God were, were so resistant to it. But the new has come, Jesus says. It's no good trying to squeeze Jesus into these old molds. And it's not because the, the old were, were totally bad. It's that the bridegroom has come. And so the whole system of worship that anticipated the Lord, anticipated the Messiah, is fulfilled. And it changes. It changes the practices. It changes the ceremonies. It even changes how we de- see them. The Pharisees' order of religion was like an old wineskin that could not be a vessel to contain that new. It couldn't just be that, that vessel to contain it all. You couldn't just dump new, the new wine of the kingdom of God into it. And Jesus finally notes that those attached to the old wine will not like the taste of the new wine and will prefer the old. That's what you see there at the end of the text. There are differing opinions on how to apply that. I think that is the, the right application there, that what they're seeing is that they've acquired the taste of the old. Now, the reason I think this, this could be other, applied in a different way, and others do, is because when you're talking about winemaking, new wine isn't as good as the old. It takes, it takes aging of wine to, 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 to be for us what we desire. And I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. I believe the point that Jesus is making here is that as those have been so entrenched into the old, They will not want the new. 
I think that's in keeping with this warning he's continually giving to them about not just having a heartless devotion to these practices, about missing the kingdom of God, and about acquiring that taste and only that taste, and so when the new wine has come, they want nothing to do with it. And that's the warning as well. That's the warning for us. To those asking him the question that they will not accept the kingdom because they only desire the old. And how do we, how do we apply that? Well, it's when, again, we would only desire the externals of religious practice. When, when that's really what we're after. And not service to Christ himself, not heartfelt obedience, not heartfelt worship. You see, it's someone who has heartfelt worship that would recognize the bridegroom. It's one who only cared about the practice and the external that would miss him. We must be those who worship in spirit and in truth, in and from our hearts, utilizing what God has given us to express that truth of worship. So we worship, and we desire to worship, and we will use the worship of God to bring him glory, and that's our greatest desire that it's our greatest desire to attend corporate worship. That it's from our heart and not just because we need to do it. It is the greatest expression of our heart. You see how you apply this text. And it means as well that even when you would fast, you understand these distinctions. You understand the goal and who you're looking to in light of who and what has come It's amazing, as we said in the beginning, Jesus offended the pious of his day. Let's not be those who miss it either. Let's not be those who are offended that he would take from us our religiosity, our our external actions, because that's all we would want. No, we do it out of the heart means we better be attuned to the presence of the Messiah and let all our feasts or fasts be centered on him. Worship of form alone is inappropriate without Christ. Notice as well the joy of the relationship we have with Jesus. That can be missed in this text as you only focus on their controversy and the arguments. Jesus' presence demands joy. We rejoice. The bridegroom is here. The time of fast is rapidly approaching its end. It is. We don't fast in the new heavens and new earth. Isn't that an encouragement? The time of fasting is drawing to its end. And as we close with with this thought, if Jesus' bodily presence on earth, while he was a man of sorrows, while he was veiled in weak flesh, and while he was there to suffer, you would think, wouldn't that require mourning? That was his life, but, but no. If Jesus' presence as the Messiah in the suffering demanded joy, and celebration. How great and how much more doesn't his presence in the new heavens and new earth demand celebration? Does that not whet our appetite for what is to come? And it isn't fasts. 
It's celebration. It's a wedding ceremony, the joy and likes of which we couldn't even comprehend or imagine when all God's people are brought in. And in heartfelt expression of worship, there is nothing but celebration. Understand and know the presence of the mediator. We have this, and I want to draw attention to our sacraments with that. Try to keep this text in mind when you approach the Lord's Supper. A beautiful feast where we are present with the Lord, spiritually so. And we feed on him. What a joyful celebration. That's, that is, is really the, the great example, a physical, a visible example of what this text is talking about. And God was gracious enough to give it to us, installing for us a regular feast that we would have our minds looking forward to that, that time of fulfillment with him. People of God, Though we may utilize fast now, ultimately we know our heart is one that is a feast and not a fast. That's our destiny, and it's entirely based on the presence and relationship with our bridegroom. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that you would apply this text well to our heart. And what we would pray is that we would not have a pharisaical understanding of the practices and worship that we do. That instead we would worship from our heart. That we would understand the freedom expressed in worship as well as what your word commands and how it binds our conscience and where it does not. That you give to us wisdom in, in understanding that. We pray that we would not have then a self-righteous expression of the way we follow you and our worship. We also pray that we would be those to not miss your presence, to not, to not fast when we should feast in light of your coming. And so we pray that we would be those to, to always understand that the Messiah has come and have that inform our worship and activities. And Lord, we pray we would as well understand the old versus the new that we would understand that what has come is, is the kingdom of God, and we rejoice in that. And we long for the time when, when fasting is, is utterly unnecessary, and in fact, inappropriate, when we will know only feasts. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for achieving the feast for us. We pray this in your name.